Welcome to the Cross the Line Podcast. My name is Carlos Smith, and today's episode is sponsored by KB's Car Care on 321 North Main Street in Jonesville, South Carolina. They offer a hand car wash, vacuum, and clean interior. Full detail is also available. While you wait on your vehicle, customer seating is available as well as the dining area. They're open Tuesday through Saturday from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., so make sure you stop by. Today's episode is also sponsored by Big Ben's Desserts. If you, need any, if you need to satisfy your sweet tooth, this is the place for you. They have a wide variety of desserts, including cakes, ice cream, banana pudding, and my favorite, Oreo cheesecake. They open Tuesday to Saturday from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. and Sunday from 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. and closed on Mondays. Stop by and visit Big Ben's Desserts on 297 Spartanburg Highway in Lyman, South Carolina, where nothing could be sweeter. So thank you guys for sponsoring this episode of the Cross the Line Podcast. And this is actually our first interview that we're doing over Zoom, but we have a very special guest with us today. This is an honor and privilege to have him on. Um, he's had a huge impact all over the country, all over the world. But um, today we have the, um, the co-founder of Reebok, Mr. Joe Foster. How are you? I am fine, Carlos. <clears throat> and you know, that sounds like a good place to go for some nice sweets. That's it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We're going to call it. But we're fine. Thank you for the invitation. Yes, sir. Uh, before we um, dive into the book, and I have so many questions that I, I have um, to ask that I'm so excited. I just want to know, how are you? I know, we, like we were saying right before we started, you know, it was, uh, these are times that we haven't really seen, especially for me. Um, I haven't seen anything like this with this pandemic. But how are you holding up during this, these difficult times of this pandemic? Well, you know, this is keeping me busy. It's mm -hmm. keeping all of us busy. Right. Zoom, the book, <clears throat> fantastic. So really whilst we've been sort of uh, locked down a few times and, you know, it's not been too good, but, you know, I'm meeting people like you. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. What more could I want? Yes. And it's, uh, yep, we didn't have this way, way, way back. But now we've got computers, we've got Zoom. Well, we, we can meet people. We can, And we've met an awful lot of people since that book came out. So it's great to be here and uh, yeah we're enjoying it we are enjoying it it's um and we've got so much more to do so many more off to dubai in a month's time so we're we're just traveling again absolutely like i say even though it's a it's, it's kind of tough you know with this pandemic you still have to find make the best of the situation and it's always for so for a lot of people it's like a blessing in disguise because it gave a lot of us a time to sit back and rearrange, re reprocess things to, to let us figure out what's important in life and those type of things. And, you know, since we're, as humans, you know, we're always on the go working and doing so many different things. So it was a time for people to kind of take a step back, and, you know, just relax for a little bit. So um, you just have to, you know, have to just take a little break and, you know, just process things. Yeah, I don't think we wanted COVID to do that, but it did it for us. It certainly did. Um, <clears throat> we could do without COVID, but you're quite right. Step back is a good thing. Absolutely. No, I have some family members right now that are that are, they have COVID right now, so it's it's hitting them pretty hard. But you know, you know, I check on them, make sure they're doing all right. Um, but it's just you know, it's, it's tough. Hopefully, they're gonna they're gonna pull through it. I, I know they will. But you know, just just have to take care of yourself right now. But you're doing it. But, but so so kind of talking about your book, um, your story is just so fascinating. And I, I read, I, I have it right here. I read the entire thing. Um, so I just want to know what, what made you say, you know what, it's finally time for me to, you know, share my story with the world. A, num a number of things, really. A lot of people have said, why don't you write your book? 
And, you know, I thought, well, I don't know, who would be interested in my book? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> but Wikipedia and Google, they, uh, you know, you ask them about Reebok and they give you a story. And I, I'm reading these stories and I'm seeing these photographs and I'm thinking, who's that photograph? That photograph of Joseph William Foster, founder of Reebok. I don't know who he is. And what's all this story about Foster's just changed the name. No, there was And so all these different stories were out there. And obviously it's people who got part of a story, invented a story, just making something up. So, I, well, maybe it's about time I wrote the book and put mm -hmm. things straight. So that was it. That was the start of it. And uh, yes, uh, <clears throat> I, I, since writing the book, it's been amazing how many people have said, why didn't you write that earlier? It's a fantastic book. They, they don't like it because it starts from two people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's where we all start from, just that one or two people. And, uh, and I think that inspires people to say, well, you know, if Joe Foster can do it, why can't we? Well, you know, you, you need some luck. You, mm -hmm. you need all the things in your way, but you need, to, you need to keep going when it gets hard. You know, when it's tough, you need that energy, that determination. So writing the book, has been has been quite revealing, and it was uh, and it, it does bring out the story of our early beginnings. Absolutely, and can you talk a little bit about your your writing process? How how long would you say it actually took for you to write this the book, and and how was you know kind of reflecting on some of the things that you said? Because you opened up a lot, um, you experienced a lot of uh, tragedy in your book as well. Like how was that writing process, and and just you know kind of opening up some of those wounds again. How, how was that? Well, it, uh, <clears throat> it took me about seven years from beginning to being published. About mm -hmm. five years to write the book. Now, I must have had about six or seven different drafts. So it took quite a while. And, you know, once you sit down and you, you write something, then you read it again, you think, ah, just a minute, but this happened also, and this happened. Mm -hmm. And so the book develops. Uh, your, your memory, uh, I didn't keep diaries, but your memory does sort of relive some of the things that you did and you, you, you remember a lot of the things. Because when, you, when you're actually experiencing it, you know, you're looking for the next, the next. So when you experience it, you don't really value what you're going through. Mm -hmm. And it's only when you sit back and you think, Joe, how did you do that? You know, I just used to jump on an airplane with a handful of uh, American Express travelers checks. Mm. And that was it. And we had no mobile phones. We didn't have computers. And wherever I went, trying to contact anybody, telephone systems were okay, but you just had to leave it with the receptionist at a hotel and they would, they would call you back. So communication wasn't that good. And yeah, you had to make decisions. I had to make decisions there and there for right, for wrong. And I got a lot of them wrong. But in the end, we got them right. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I read your book, because I'm, I'm so fascinated with entrepreneurship, so I read your book, and I also read Shoe Dog by Phil Knight. And it, you guys shared a lot of the similar things. And one of the things I saw from both of you, that both of you, you ran track, do you feel like that helped both of you? Um, how much did that help, you know, when it comes to, you know, creating shoes? Because both of you ran track. So how do you feel that kind of helped you both? Well, our, our paths were very similar. 
Mm-hmm. Indeed, they were, and I've read Shoe Dog, and uh, I, I find that Phil Knight's story is quite, <clears throat> quite fascinating. Absolutely. <clears throat> but we, we, we were a lot different because Phil Knight never made a shoe. Phil Knight took Tiger, mm-hmm. on its suit, which is now R6. <clears throat> he took Tiger because he thought they made a good shoe, and so he started selling shoes. Mm-hmm. We started making shoes. So we were making the shoes. We were designing and making shoes. And Phil didn't get his, uh, well, they didn't start designing it. I think it was Bill Borman. Who probably Bill Borman, yep. Mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, he, he was the uh, <clears throat> initial designer with the waffle sole. Yep. Um, and, and it's only then. But, you know, they never had a factory, so they always had to go to a factory to get them made. So we had a different... Uh, so a different road, but it was quite parallel. Because Jeff, my brother, <clears throat> he just loved the factory. That's all he wanted to do was make shoes. <clears throat> and so I, I did designing, he did some designing as well, but then he made the shoes. We had the factory, so we put things together. He loved that. And our agreement was Jeff was in the factory and it was Joe. He would do everything else. So <laughs> the marketing, the... Uh, the travel, the sales, everything came down to me. So I, I got to tell the story. Mm-hmm. How, how did it feel, you know, early in your book, you were also talking about your father because, you know, well, your grandfather started the, the J.W. Fosters and Sons. And early in your book, you were talking about your father and you said you were running and he would place bets on you running, trying to win races. How did that feel for you kind of almost like you were kind of like fighting for his approval? How, how was that? Um, their relationship with your father? Well, yeah, you know, I, I didn't like running. I, I preferred playing a sport, playing a game. Running to me, it was hard work. It was something you just did if you were a sprinter and I was a sprinter. So that was something very quick. But there was no, I, I didn't get any real pleasure out of running. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and obviously my father, yes, he placed bets. But I was the kid, I was, you know, less than 10 years old was probably seven eight nine when when that occurred and uh, by the time I was 10 I'd, I'd sort of said to my father no I don't like running so uh, I, I think at that time he lost a bit of interest in me mm. <laughs> I think it was all right whilst I was running and using the company's product because one, one of the reasons and uh, it's in the book I won a number of prizes but you know, I had an advantage. I had spiked running shoes during the war in the in the 1940s, and not many of not many of the kids that were competing with me could afford running shoes mm-hmm. with spikes. It was something new, something different. So maybe I had an advantage, but even so, I I didn't like running. Mm-hmm. You and it's, you also talk spoke about your your dad and your uncle. They clash a lot, typically, and kind of like your your grandmother. Um, she was the one who kind of was like the mediator trying to, to, to keep that peace. Did you ever feel like you were kind of on one side or the other when it came to your, your father and your uncle and, and the family business? <clears throat> well, it was, it was something really that, again, when you're young and we were only teenagers growing up, I, I didn't get into the business until I was 17. And then I only had one year before national service that was going off into the armed forces. Mm-hmm. We, in those days, we had to do national service for two years. So I, I only had one year in the business and uh, 
I was looked after by my grandmother when I was in the business, when I was working there, because I was born on my grandfather's birthday. birthday. <laughs> so she had a bit of a soft spot there. She, you know, she thought I'd sort of her husband come back. So I, I got a lot of favours, which was probably not fair, but uh, <laughs> you don't say no. Do you? Right. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> so we we didn't know. Neither Jeff nor myself knew that um, father and uncle were really at each other's throats or didn't like each other because grandmother was there. It was only when we came back, we went away, we did national service, <clears throat> we came back and we saw the company was failing. And we asked, why is this company failing? And it then became obvious that father and Uncle Bill just did not work together. Mm -hmm. And a, bit, a, a company can't go anywhere if, you've, if you're not pulling together. You've all got to pull in the right, uh, the right direction. And of course, it wasn't too bad until grandmother died and grandmother died just about one year after we'd uh, come back from doing national service and that 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 then was the end mm -hmm. um my father and uncle they didn't speak to each other <clears throat> i mean we we have Addie dassler and rudy dassler the dassler brothers they were the same but uh, rudy dassler left and set up puma and of mm -hmm. course Addie dassler is adidas so but that didn't happen at foster's the arguments kept going on and on. And, and in fact, Jeff and I had to pull, pull them apart on occasions because mm. we're fighting. So, you know, and we used to, I would say to my father, come on, we, we need to change this. And if we can't change it, we need, we need to get out. We need to set up a separate company. You know, you, could, you and us will set up a separate company, mm. but he wouldn't, take, he wouldn't do that. Um, all he would say is, look, when... When I'm gone and Bill's gone, this company will be yours. Mm. <clears throat> but it was pretty obvious. And I said, look, Dad, we don't want you to go. That's not, that's not the plan. Uh, <clears throat> but this company will be gone long before you are. Mm -hmm. The way it's going now, it will be dead. And uh, that really convinced Jeff and myself we had to do it alone. We had to leave the company and set up our own company. Absolutely. And, and, and it's something you said that was interesting. You like your dad and your uncle came complacent. It was kind of like back then, people didn't, you know, go against the norm and stir the pot. It was always just like the same way of thinking like in society. And I just wanted to know for you, do you think, knowing what you know about your grandfather, do you think he would have become complacent or do you think he would have, you know, been able to, been willing to, you know, change things and, and adapt to business? Grandfather was quite a genius, <clears throat> quite a legend, because uh, he either invented or he pioneered the spike track shoe. And certainly we, we don't see much or read much about spike track shoes before he made his, his shoes in 1895. It's quite possible. And he got his idea from cricket, because cricket boots, have been mm -hmm. being made for a while, and they had spikes in the bottom. And, and uh, we, we think that he asked his grandfather, Why have they got spikes in these shoes? And I'm pretty sure the answer would be for grip. You, mm -hmm. They need that to grip because when they're playing on grass, uh, they, they'd be slipping if they didn't have a spike. So we believe that he's, his, his idea was to make a running shoe because he was in the local running club. Mm -hmm. Is a as a Boy Scout, you say that you had a moment where 
you were hiking in a blizzard and you say you realized that you controlled your fate. Do you feel like everyone has a moment or it'll, it'll come a moment where they, they have something that hits them where it's like they control their own destiny and they whatever they want to do in life, it's, up, it's in their hands? <clears throat> Certainly, the younger you are, mm-hmm. the more certain that is. I think the older you get, you get fixed into too many things. You, 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 you sort of cornered into whatever you're doing. You're, you're a longer road. I think when you're young, um, you're indestructible. You know, mm-hmm. Jeff and I, I was uh, 22, was it 23? And Jeff was 25. You know, I, I was 25, Jeff's 20, 26. And we, uh, you know, what can go wrong when you're young? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, if you fail, you can start again. But we didn't have any, we didn't have any ideas that we would fail. It was, no, we can do this. And, uh, and I think when you're young, you do take those choices. And I think, yes, everybody has that choice. Well, we hope everybody gets that choice. I'm sure there are people in this world, and we've been reading just recently of things going on, which mm-hmm. make you wonder how many people will have choices. Right. But, you know... I am. Um, I think I was talking to uh, to Dan Pink, who you might might well know, and he was thinking. He was saying how lucky we are, because Dan Pink's written about five books. They sold them very well, and he said, you know, to be born in America, in the twentieth century, that's luck, mm-hmm. you know. And for me to be born in uh, in England in the twentieth century. That's your first piece of luck, is to be born somewhere where you can have a choice. Right. You can mm-hmm. make those choices. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you've got to say, well, yeah, you know, we're, you look around the world and there's a lot of places you're glad that you've just not been born into. So that's your first stroke of luck. And that's when you, having that luck gives you the opportunity to change your mind, to do things, to make that decision. Mm-hmm. And, you, and no, like you said, today's a society, it's like you say, being young, you can, you should start early. Like, And I hear that a lot from a lot of entrepreneurs. It's one of the things, you know, just reading and, and interviewing a lot of the entrepreneurs that we talk to, a lot of them say, you know, that one of the best things you can do is just start early, start young. And like, you make mistakes, you learn from them, but you continue to learn from it and you continue to grow. Um, do you feel like, you know, being in a family that created shoes, had that not been something that was in your family, do you think you still would have, you know, created shoes or would you have tried your hand at something else? I don't know. I don't think you, we sort of um, uh, are able to really make a, a sort of uh, vision of looking back on, on life. You know, I was born into it. But I, I think if you, uh, you know, if you're looking around, you're young, and if you've got adventure, and you need a bit of adventure. You need you need to have that optimism, that uh, will to do something. Then I think yes, maybe I I, I could have made different choices. Uh, I trained as an engineer, so I could have gone into aerospace, uh, the aerospace industry. Um, I I don't know. I suppose really it was just simple, just easy to follow the family business, mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. The choice there was whilst we were in the family business and we, we, we knew what we wanted in terms of a product. So it was easier, I suppose, for us just to leave the family business and set up in a similar business. 
than to leave the family business and set up in something else. Um, we would have had to have uh, <clears throat> a, a lot of interest in something else to do that. But, you know, we were in a family business. We knew there was a lot of room in that business. We knew there was space. We knew the Fosters, J.W. Fosters, my grandfather's company. He started something brilliant. And, you know, he, he was uh, an influencer. He knew who to give shoes to and who to get to run in his product. And then he advertised a lot. Mm -hmm. I, I have a, a thick book of all his advertising. And it's incredible the amount of So he, had he not died at, he died at the age of 53, which is quite young. Mm -hmm. um, and I think had he lived, I think the company would have been, would have grown bigger and bigger. But uh, unfortunately he didn't. And unfortunately his sons didn't seem to have that enterprise, that, that willingness. I think grandfather did so well uh, at building his business in his time that uh, his sons just just kept it going, mm -hmm. just didn't need need to, or didn't see the need to push it. Mm -hmm. And of course, you know, there's, there's another thing, another aspect of uh, both my uncle and both my father, they, they lived through two world wars. Mm -hmm. So you've got World War I, 1914, 1918, and then they're also living through World War Two. And by the time that had happened, I don't know, maybe they lost the drive the energy. By that time, they were in the 50s, uh, after World War Two, and probably didn't have that energy to say, right, what do we do with the business? Mm -hmm. So, you know, if, if we're being kind, if we're being kind, we can say that uh, they, were, they were unlucky to be born at that time. Right. You know, we're saying about luck, and yes, it, I was lucky, and Dan Pink, he, he thought he was lucky to be born. Uh, in, in the 20th century in America. Hmm. So, you know, it, it, does, it does make you, when, when you reflect, you reflect on what are the things that really uh, made you make a decision. And, mm -hmm. you know, and providing you make a decision, and it might be a wrong one, but make a decision. Absolutely. Because if it's the wrong one, you can correct it. Absolutely. If you had to say, just looking back, do you... You know how your brother, your your father, and your uncle clashed. Would you say they really truly enjoyed making shoes, or or do you think just because it was just a family business, they just held on to it for as long as they could, or do you think they didn't really enjoy it? I think you you are somewhat going on the right uh, track here with the fact that did they enjoy? I I think it provided a good living, and. Uh, I don't think they had the spirit that Jeff and I had when we set up our company. They didn't have that spirit to take their company, company of the grandfather. I don't think they had that spirit there. Like I said, maybe two world wars took it out of them. But I, I think they were just marking time. They were just doing, doing what they needed to do just to keep going. They, mm -hmm. Whether they could see, I don't think they could see the fact that the, the business was, was dying. Um, say it gave them a living and they, they almost did it out of uh, duty you know mm -hmm. they've been brought up in the early part of the 20th century and the duty was that you you worked and but, but whether you had any vision and and they certainly didn't have the vision mm -hmm. 
do you think had they listened to you, where do you think the company would have been? Do you still feel like you probably would have in, in eventually left there to start your own, or or what do you think the family business would have been had they listened to you? Well, the, the family business, uh, by the time we would have become involved in it seriously, uh, would have lost too much of, of its energy. It had lost the energy. I, <clears throat> when, when you look back and you think of what my grandfather did and uh, how he got world records, he supplied in the Amsterdam Olympics, he supplied all the teams in the Amsterdam Olympics in 1920. And we have that written down on a letterhead. He supplied that. He also supplied every football club that you can mention in, mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom. Big ones like Manchester United, Arsenal, Chelsea. He supplied them. So he had vision. And <clears throat> that vision, I'm sure he would have he would have extended it and expanded it. Um, maybe he didn't give his sons enough scope to become involved. Maybe they just were there making the shoes. But uh, what would we have done? Well, <clears throat> I, get, I guess the problem there is the timing. <laughs> mm -hmm. As you know, had the business been growing, it would have been a different business. We would have been in a, a bigger factory. We'd have been looking at a bigger picture. But you, we needed we needed Uncle and uh, and and my father to work together to see that right. bigger picture. So difficult to say. Mm -hmm. um, I think as it as it happened that we changed, we moved away and come up with a new name. I think that that gave us more energy mm. that to drive J.W. Foster and Sons forward in this day. You know, today, you need as few syllables as possible. Reebok is good. Adidas, Puma, Nike. You know, this is what you say. Now, you, know, you don't say J.W. Foster and Sons. Right. <laughs> so there was probably a need to do some marketing work on that. Mm -hmm. And uh, indeed... As I say, people did say all we did was change the name. Well, we didn't, but uh, I, I think it probably would have needed a change of name. Mm -hmm. And uh, just, just out of curiosity, just I know my, I may be showing my age a little bit right here, but just how big were were you said Puma and Adidas back then? Because for me, I, I was born in '92, and for me, the, for the longest, when I think about the shoe brands the biggest one that comes to mind for me was automatically just like nike and, and jordan even now jordan like they keep on they keep putting out different brand different jordans now and people are just constantly buying them off the shelf here like constantly um but just how big was adidas and puma back then because to me like i was saying like when you think about brands here uh it's like nike and jordan are like the elite right now but how big were adidas and puma Adidas and Puma, they, they, they were the big boys, but they were only big after the Second World War. And uh, they, they, they were in the American zone, so they were, they were fortunate in some ways, being in Germany, because, you know, Americans love the sport. And the American zone of Germany, which was occupied then, they, they went to Adidas and Puma to buy shoes, because why not? And... Uh, yeah, Adidas started to grow on that and really grew well. Um, and by the time Jeff and I left the company in 1958, 
we left the jail first by that time Adidas were so big in soccer so big that we we couldn't touch soccer we had, we had to stay with athletics mm-hmm. athletics and and rugby rugby was also another because that was a north of England uh, sport so we had to focus on something we knew that uh, Adidas were not in there yet mm-hmm. and certainly hadn't taken a big big hold of it um, so I, I think our decision was well Adidas and Puma are big now by comparison to us <clears throat> and uh, we need to carve out a piece of business that uh, we can grow and that was athletics but athletics was only so big in the UK and I knew that athletics in the USA was so much bigger. And so in, in order to expand our company, that's why I looked to the USA. And mm-hmm. I thought, I, I also knew the guy who was uh, a head coach at Yale University, that's Frank Ryan. He had been working with Fosters, but he was head coach. I think he was also a mild champion at the, at the time, or he had been a mild champion. <clears throat> so. I, I met with him and talking with him, yes, you know, every university, every college has coach. And coach is a god. Coach can do an awful lot for you. And you can get a scholarship, an athletics, a sports scholarship to go to university. In the UK, you couldn't do that. We had one university alone, Loughborough, that would work with sports. Otherwise, everything else was academic. Um, so I knew that in, in America, we could grow a business. Mm-hmm. Plus the fact the language is the same. Trying to do it in Europe with 28 different languages, cultures, countries, difficult. Plus the fact you had added us a Puma right. in there. That, that would be difficult to attack that sort of mm. market. <clears throat> so as you've read in the book, I mean, I spent, well, it was 1968 um, when I first went to America. Mm-hmm. And it was 1979 when I got a distributor, when I really found Paul Feynman. Uh, that's 11 years. 11 mm-hmm. years and at least six failures. At least mm-hmm. six times we attempted to get into the market, got a good guy, got a little bit of distribution, but it wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the answer was the fact that, again, another stroke of luck, running Running became a big category in America. Mm-hmm. Started off very late in the 60s and all through the 70s, that was the growth period. That's when Phil Knight and Bill Bowman, you know, they brought in Nike. They built Nike during that time. And that was the big market. We, unfortunately, we were 2,000 miles away from that market. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it meant an awful lot of flying in, an awful lot of knocking on doors. Um, but the good thing about it with Runner's World, Runner's World then, it started off as a sheet of paper, just an A4 sheet of paper. And by the mid-70s, it was a fully glossy magazine. And Bob Anderson was telling everybody which shoe to wear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was okay. <clears throat> but he was saying you should work. This was a number one. And I think a number one was a Nike, maybe a Nike Tailwind or something. The problem is you've probably got about um, 40 million runners using, using roads training at that point. And maybe 4 million of those would like to buy that number one shoe. 
Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, you can't. And you, they were being brought in from Japan. So Phil Knight had no chance to satisfy all the orders. Absolutely no chance at that time. They were small, blue ribbon sports, small company. Mm-hmm. And they tried hard, but, and Bob Anderson tried to tell everybody again a second time, which was a number one shoot. The trade, the trade must have uh, said an awful lot because he changed it. And he changed it to a five star, so a rating. So that a five star shoe, you could have three or four or five star shoes. That gave us a chance because I knew we could make a five star shoe, <coughs> which we did. And uh, we succeeded by, by making Aztec. And mm-hmm. that, that, was, that was the answer to us. Instead, we'd been pushing hard, pushing to try and get into the market. But once we got a five star shoe, that was the hook. And mm-hmm. you know very well, yeah, that was that magic thing that happens. So we, we had the hook then, and people wanted to buy our shoes. People wanted Reebok then. So I, and that was great. We mm-hmm. were fantastic in, in the early 80s. We were a nice running shoe company, growing very nicely. That's but you know, that wasn't, that wasn't the full success for Reebok. The full success for Reebok was a road I I just want to know, um, one of the things that I saw also was, you know, starting out when you, you had to move move in briefly with your in-laws um, as a time to, you know, kind of get things going and get, get on your ground, um, get things going. Um, was it kind of hard to, you know, swallow your pride in the beginning, you know, trying to, you know, say, hey, hey I know I had to, to get things where I need to go, I need to move in my in-laws and, and build things like, is it hard to swallow your pride as an entrepreneur trying to build something or did you say, okay, I know I need to do this, let me go ahead and move in with my, my in-laws so I could, you know, build my business to be become a success? Well, fortunately, they were very happy to do that. They were very mm-hmm. happy, very supportive. <clears throat> and that is good. <clears throat> Maybe my own father, as you, as you know, he wasn't supportive because right. we left. Um, but my in-laws are very supportive, and uh, I, I didn't. I had little pride to worry about. <laughs> you're, mm. you're young, you're starting something. Well, I can maybe be proud now of one or two of the things we did. But in those days, it was uh, well. It was just good that they were supportive, mm-hmm. and uh, they were happy for us to, to to come back to live with them, just for a short while. And, uh, but certainly, um, my father-in-law at that time, he would do anything. He would help us. And, you know, that, that's so important when you've got people on your side. Mm-hmm. It, it's, uh, it, it, it just helps you. It just makes things so much easier when somebody's saying yes, yes. And, you know, there, there was assistance to help that. <clears throat> you know, had it been the other way around, I, I don't know. Mm. But as I say, at that point, I was more, I was more focused on a future than being proud, worrying about anything. We, I mean, we ended up living in accommodation, which was attached to the to the factory. Mm-hmm. So that was very convenient that uh, that accommodation was there, but it wasn't the best of accommodation. Mm. <laughs> but you know, so- <clears throat> when you're focused on one thing, and that is how to get something moving. Um, 
you don't really worry too much about that. You just you get on with it. Absolutely. For for people watching this interview who are going to watch it later on or listen to it, as an as for as an entrepreneur, how important is it to you know not live above your means? Because nowadays on social media, it's it's kind of dangerous because you just see a lot of success stories. Nobody posts their failures or the the the, thing, the obstacles that they're going through. The only thing you see is they're traveling or living this glamorous life, but but behind the scenes, they may really be struggling. But so as an entrepreneur, how important is it for people watching this um, to let them know to not live above your means? <clears throat> I guess it's more difficult today because there's so much on offer. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we, we have television. Back in those early days, television was very uh, was only small, black and white. No, no big attractions. Um, so we, we, I suppose local attractions were mostly sort of going out to dance halls or what we had pubs, you know, going, doing, you know, playing sport. And, you know, we could play sport. And we didn't have the, uh, the holiday situation that you have now. And as you say, there's so much you can buy now. The shops are bigger, so many more things, and the, there's big attractions. So I guess, I guess today, you have to be more disciplined mm -hmm. uh, than, than we, we need it to be. You know, <clears throat> you're probably the same. We have racks of clothes. We buy clothes. Do we wear them all? Probably not. But no, no, I do no. remember back in those days, I probably had two pair of trousers. Mm -hmm. one, one that I was working in and one that I would go out in. And, <laughs> you know, <clears throat> did you need any more? I don't know. E even today, we, we have racks of trousers and shirts and, you know, but you probably have a favourite or mm -hmm. a favourite too. And you wear that and maybe 90% of your wardrobe you don't. But we are spending the money. And like I said, the attraction is there. Holidays. And... It's nice because you can see some beautiful places now and the travel programs. So I think I think it's tough, you know, if, if you're not earning enough money to be able to enjoy it and have to see that. But, you know, you make your own life. You know, it's, mm -hmm. wherever your pleasure is with people. <clears throat> in, those, uh, in those early days, my wife, well, first of all, she couldn't travel with me because I traveled a lot. I started traveling fairly early. And she couldn't. But after that, there was opportunities, many opportunities, and she just didn't want to travel. And she mm -hmm. just didn't. She didn't enjoy it until really towards the the end of during the late eighties, when we were doing the Monte Carlo um, events for uh, Princess Grace's fund, the Princess Grace Fund. Yeah. We had stars from Hollywood, and we it was a Pro celebrity tennis tournament. So we had some of the best tennis players and a lot of Hollywood people from the, even Frank Sinatra came over on one of the occasions to our event. So, you know, we, and those were nice events. So, yes, my mm -hmm. wife did travel on those occasions. And, and I think it's being together. I mean, right now, I, I'm married to Julie, who you've probably fixed this up with. Uh, um, when people want uh, want me to go somewhere, in fact, we're going to Dubai in uh, October. We're, wow! We're at the uh, it's at the GTEx, a uh, big exhibition, big show that's going on there, and I am speaking there. Um, but I said, if you want me, it's two tickets. Hmm. <laughs> it's two of us. Right. So now Julie and I, we just travel together, and I, and I think that is, you know, it's, it's 
being with the right people is more important than maybe sitting on a, a wonderful big yacht so that you can do whatever. I think the people make such a big difference in your life. Absolutely. Having the people. Yes, sir. And being happy together. Absolutely. You had, you said something in the book also that was fascinating to me was a, for in order for Reebok to succeed, you had to think big but didn't know how to achieve big. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Well, you know, when you when you, when you when you strike a bit of luck and things start to move forward, you still you know, you've been working these things out one or two people, you know, and you're working hard on this and you you really haven't felt the growth. But you growing steadily and it, it's other people it's retail somebody comes to you and says, wow Reebok that's a big company now isn't it mm-hmm. you know, and you say is it <laughs> you ask yourself the question because you've not been counting heads you know you've just been working hard and you say is it well if they think we're a big company why don't we think we're a big company hmm. and so it is a change of mindset of saying, right, you know, we're, we're big. Let's act big. Let's be that way. And it, it, it's a subtle thing that uh, that happens, where you you know, where you're just doing the same thing you've been doing, and you've been growing, but you've not been, I say, not been head counting. You've not been. Nothing seems to change much except you're selling more. You sell, people are taking that job. People, you know, you get an accountant, and that you you get a legal team. And people, well, people say they think you're big. You've got to act big. You've got mm-hmm. to be big enough to to do that job. So it, it is something that uh, other other people will tell you how big you are before you really recognize the fact that hmm, maybe maybe we're big. Mm-hmm. When you, when you talk about the the success of Reebok and you know your your father passed away, um, I know you guys didn't have the the greatest relationship, but were you? Were you more disappointed from the standpoint of he, he passed away and didn't get to see the business, or was it more of like a point of what you didn't get a chance to kind of like prove him wrong? Like, look, I we left the family business and created this big successful brand. Were you more disappointed in the fact that you didn't get a chance to prove him wrong? Well, <clears throat> I don't think it ever occurred to either Jeff or myself to prove them wrong. I think we wanted to prove ourselves right. Mm-hmm. <clears> that we were, we were doing something. It wasn't that they were wrong. We were not trying to. Uh, we were not bitter in that way. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we we were just sort of um, we we saw it differently, and in seeing it differently, we had to do something about that. <clears throat> so doing about that wasn't really a matter of saying, you know, look what we've done. We 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 were not there to gloat or to say, you know, look how big we are. Um, we were growing nicely whilst father was still around, but not big enough. He did die before um, before we really became a big company. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and uh, I, I remember mother saying, "Oh, you, your father would have been so pleased to see what's happening." And uh, and I'm sure at that point he would have been pleased to see that we were succeeding. But I, I don't think we ever looked at it, and certainly I never looked at it that we were proving them wrong. Mm-hmm. I, I say I think it was more proven that we were right, right. and that that was the right thing to do because I, I don't know I think it's fairly negative 
to try. And there's a lot of negativity that goes on. A lot of people ask me, don't you hate Nike? Don't you hate Adidas? Well, I, th I think that's for the people who write stories. Because I never hated Adidas. I never hated Nike. You know, and right. uh, I, I think what they have done is great. Mm -hmm. uh, Adidas buying Reebok wasn't the best idea. That wasn't the best for Reebok. But, you know, they paid a lot of money. Right. <laughs> and when you pay a lot of money, you, you do you have the right to do things. And, and even now, they have decided that they can't do it. Reason they can't do it, <clears throat> they know how to do it. They know how to make Reebok a big company. But it, it's the same footprint that Adidas have. It's just the same footprint. So they'd be taken away from Adidas. And it's how do you, how do you make that same company in that same space, uh, how do you make it big? So I think the best thing is now that it's, uh, it's up for sale. We know that uh, uh, the authentic uh, group Authentic brand, yeah, what is it? Authentic. Yeah, authentic brands. Frank, mm -hmm. yeah, ABG, authentic brand. And, uh, you know, they're, they're going through the process. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting at the end of that as to where Reebok starts to uh, become its own company again. Mm -hmm. Was it hard for you to kind of, um, I know I'm skipping ahead of some of my questions here, but what we're talking about, is it hard for you to kind of, you know, let go of Reebok? Because this is something that, you know, this is kind of like your baby. You built it from the ground up, you and your brother. And was it kind of hard to, you know, step back and kind of like let it go? Well, <clears throat> again, that's a question that I get asked, and uh, it, that decision, we, we actually uh, became number one. We became bigger than Adidas, became bigger than Nike, and uh, by the end of 1980, we were the number one company. Mm. So I, I find it difficult to say, well, I should have made a different decision because we became number one, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? and that's great. And I'm still the founder, Absolutely. <laughs> whichever way. Um, and, you know, I think if you want to see your brand succeed, and we're going back now quite a number of years, I think there's more money, more vision available these days. But back then, it was a decision that, okay, we need to bring the money in. And if you bring the money in, then, you know, people need to have control. People need to do that because that's the money. And we have Paul Feynman working very hard. And of course, we, uh, we got Stephen Rubin, who didn't put a lot of money in, but what he did do, he, uh, he provided product out of the Far East and provided a credit line, which meant that really he had a lot of money involved. And, and it, it worked for the company. Without that, without that, you might think, well, the company would have starved the market because the demand for the aerobic shoes when, when the aerobics took off was tremendous. Uh, and it required an awful lot of financing. And Stephen Rubin was there to provide that finance. So for me, it allowed Reebok to become number one. Mm -hmm. And so for me, you know, there is no regret. It's fantastic. And I, and I can talk to you from the knowledge that the company did become number one. And yes. we did do an awful lot of opening doors and become somebody, uh, somebody, uh, a, a brand, a global brand. Absolutely. Well, you, you mentioned Paul Fireman and, and he was, um, 
key as well. He was like, one of the things he said, he was like all the bust. And it's almost as if, you know, for the entrepreneurs, it's like you, when it's like your back, your back was against the wall, his back was against the wall. It's like, it was either we're going to make this thing work or it's, or it's over with. Um, what is it about having your back against the wall and it's, and it's like you almost like destined to succeed when you put your back against the wall and you know you have to go all in on, on your business? Well, I mean, you do that a number of times in many different ways as you're growing. You get to the point where you've got to make a decision and your back is against the wall sometimes. Um, and I, I think it's a question of the type of person you are. As far as I'm concerned, it, it is a matter of saying, well, you know, we've got to make a decision. Let's, let's make it. Let's go forward. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't know where it's going to lead. But if I, if I don't make that decision, it could mean that we lose an opportunity. So I think, I think the, it's essential that you see the opportunity and don't let it pass you by. Even, even if you've got to give up. What at that time was not a big company. It had the, it, it had the makings, it, had, it needed the opportunity. The opportunity was there. So we had to feed the opportunity. And, uh, you know, it, it's great. And, and, you know, we may be back again to be number one. Who knows if these people have the right attitude and, you know, they, they're willing to, well, put their energy into it as well as some finance. But energy is needed. Mm-hmm. Imagination and uh, creativity. That's what they've got to get into the brand again. Yeah, absolutely. I, I want to ask because, like I said earlier, you you experienced like a lot of uh, death in your family, and your brother Jeff passed away in, in 1980, and it was almost as if you just had to keep going with the business. Did you ever feel like you had a chance to kind of, you know, grieve your brother your brother's loss when it happened? Because it seemed like quickly you just had to keep on pushing the business. Did you feel like you ever had a chance to properly grieve? I, I think that grieving can be done in different ways. I think it can be done by being aggressive, by saying, well, this is the time to succeed. You know, it was at a time just when we'd got into America and we were still trying to grow the company. So, and I, I think it probably doubled my efforts in sort of making sure that whatever Jeff, what he'd done during his life, Mm-hmm. It was successful, and you know there was success at the end of it. And yes, uh, it, you know people ask about regrets, and the only regrets I have are, are the fact that Jeff died and my daughter died. You know, the, the, these are things, but you can't do anything about that. Why? You know, it's something you can't you can't do. So, you know, all we can do is to uh, value the memory, and. You know, as I say, for Jeff, unfortunately, it was at a time when we just had the opportunity. And that's essentially the opportunity. We weren't successful then. We had Mm -hmm. a big opportunity. We'd made ourselves a big opportunity. And so I I think essentially, for me, it was making sure that that happened. Mm -hmm. Does it, This, of course, like you say, your, your brother died and your daughter died. And I know it's, it's it's been years years removed from it, but is it hard to to you know let that go? Like, how do you? It's like there's nothing you can do to bring them back. But like, how do you process all of that now? Is it do you try to 
Do you still think about it? Does it bother you? Like, how do you like deal with it now? Like you said, everybody has different ways of grieving, grieving, and it's like nothing we can do to bring them back. But how 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 are you handling that now? Like, do you still think about it? And like, how is it for you today? With, like dealing with those lo- those significant losses in your family. Well, you know, you ne- you never lose it. You never lose that feeling, that uh, sadness that uh, you know people should be here. And, and they're mm-hmm. not. You, you never lose that connection. But uh, you, you can always value the times, the times that you had together, the things that we did together. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I can value what Jeff and I did with the company, the times we had to sit down. You know, and we never argued. My father and uncle, they argued all the time and they fought and then they never spoke to each other. Jeff and I never did that. We were always very good friends. We worked together. And I must have made a lot of mistakes because I, I was let loose to do the things. And, uh, but Jeff never complained. So, you know, he must have seen me, oh, Joe, why did you do that? But we never, we never fell out because he, he also knew that I would be looking for an answer. If there was a problem, I would be looking for the answer. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I can value our time together, the things that we did and how we started the company. You know, I can't change history. I can't change anything. Mm-hmm. I can't bring, bring him back. Um, but I, I can take pleasure and value in the fact that he was with me. We started something. And you can't take that away. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't think too much of grief. I, I try to look at the, the things that we did together, you know, the points that we... Uh, we we put a company together. We worked hard together. And we enjoyed it, and that mm-hmm. was a big thing. So I think it's looking at the pleasures you have in life, rather than the fact that unfortunately people are not here, mm-hmm. and would love them to be here. I would love them to have seen Reebok's success. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I mean, you mentioned my father didn't see the success, <clears throat> but neither did my brother. Mm-hmm. And that, that is sadder, really. But, uh, you know, again, as I say, it's looking for the good things you did between you and you know, how, you, how we managed to get it to that point. And we had got it to the point where the opportunity was there. Mm-hmm. I just got a few more questions and then we'll get ready to wrap it up. I, I just wanted to know, you know, as an entrepreneur, um, is it a such, do you think it's a such thing as having balance? Because I'm, at one point in the book, you mentioned, you know, you felt like it was a point where either you had to do, you know, you were away from home so much and you was like it was almost like you were just a man just paying the bills, not being with your, your wife and your kids. And it's like if for you it was a point where it was either, you know, build a successful business or be a family man. You couldn't do both. So as an entrepreneur, do you feel like it's a such thing as, as having balance or is it just you just have to deal with it the best you can because like I said, it's business or family? Well, I, I think with a business, if you, you're growing a business, you're working at a business, that, that is keeping your family. That is providing for your family. Mm-hmm. To try and turn your back on it or slow it down, it's, a, it, it's an impossible task. I think what you have to do is to keep going with the, with the business and try to include your family. You know, try and be inclusive. As I say, uh, the opportunities for my wife to travel were, were many. The fact that she didn't want to or didn't, that's okay. It's if you push them away, that's the problem. I think to try and invite them, because 
we, we did an awful lot, and we did a world tour. It wasn't, wasn't a, a pretty good, <laughs> there were some difficulties with it <clears throat> at the end, but uh, um, she came with me and we, we did one of the, I went around the world at least three times a year for 10 years. I was doing that because I was building the global distribution and the invitation was there. And we had friends in Australia and who had left the United Kingdom and gone to Australia, and she was able to visit them. You know? So there were many areas where uh, um, the advantages. And so it's, it's a mixed feeling. I, I think that uh, if, you, if you pull away from your business, you, you've got to think, well, how do we keep, you know, how do we keep the family together? It's, you know, you need the money, you need the income. And, you know, we were, we were lucky because we became, well, we became a big company. You know, mm -hmm. we became a well-known company. And, uh, you know, and that does help. Mm -hmm. I, I think it must be very difficult if you're working and it's not paying off, if things aren't going. But that, that again, is something for a decision. If it isn't working, then it's failing and it's time to change. But uh, I know for many years <laughs> we could have said that our company was failing because it had so many problems. But mm -hmm. um, it is just keeping going. And, you know, to change directions, I know my wife did say to me on more than one occasion, why don't you get a decent job? <laughs> mm -hmm. and, oh, yes, okay. You know, but then they say, what, what is a decent job? How do you change from what you do it? Um, because you know, there's stress, and the, mm -hmm. the family feels the stress that uh, you, you're going through. And, and, and as you've read the book, uh, we we hit many uh, many problems along the way. Mm -hmm. um, but but I think also it's your attitude. You know, if you if you feel the stress is a burden, yes, you should get out. If you feel the stress is a driver, it's something that's pushing you and helping you to make decisions, then you keep going and you should keep going. So, you know, where's the, where's the balance? I, I think the balance is, uh, is something to do with the company and it's something to do with making space for your family. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but you know, I, I don't think you have much control over it. Absolutely. Uh, what, what would you say is like, your most memorable moment um, of everything you went through through the entire process, whether it's, um, I remember the moment you said when you came to America, they seen, someone seen you and they stuck out a piece of pen, a piece of paper for signing an autograph, you're meeting these celebrities and athletes. What would you say of everything was, well, was one of your most memorable moments? Well, as you can imagine, there's plenty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> there's plenty. They're stepping into the palace in Monaco and meeting Prince Rainier and sharing a glass of champagne. They're stepping onto the uh, the dance floor of Ginger Rogers' home in Beverly Hills. You know, these are things that uh, you, you think, wow. Uh, there's meeting so many of the stars of Hollywood at the uh, events that we put on. And, uh, you know, there's so, so many, but I think that getting five stars, getting five stars for Aztec, when we got that, that was the hook. Mine, though, I think that was probably the most memorable and mm -hmm. fabulous moment that, that I, can, I can imagine. I mean, 
becoming number one, you know, being bigger than Addis, be bigger than Nike. That was, you know, learning that, that was a good, that was a good time. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were many good times. Uh, but yes, probably, probably Aztec becoming uh, a five-star shoe. Hmm. What would your advice be <clears throat> to anyone who, who wants to become an entrepreneur? Um, they may not want to create a shoe, but they just want to take a leap of faith and create their own opportunity with their business. What advice would you have for entrepreneurs? Well, I, I would say, first of all, I hope you're young because young, you can stand, you can stand the problems. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you know, failure, you look at it, if it fails, don't think of failure as being an end. Failure, that's a lesson. That's mm-hmm. something for you to take away. And the younger you are uh, in, in receiving those, uh, those failures, the better, you know, but uh, I, I will say if anybody comes to me, look, I've got this idea and I'd like to do this, then I say, go ahead. Give mm-hmm. it a try. Because if you don't give it a try, you will regret it. That's the thing that you will look back and say, why didn't I do that? It mm-hmm. may not work, but you know, you don't go, you don't make these efforts without expecting it not to work. No expected to work and most people I know who who take that step they make they make it work mm-hmm. and they make it work because the, in the first place if you're thinking about it you've got some ideas you've got some energy you've got something that is inside you right? and you need that you need that optimism and uh, if, if you have that optimism and you, you just give it a go Absolutely. You, you, I wanted to ask a couple more questions. Your, when your, your daughter Kay passed away, did it make you wish that you were around more? Is there anything you wish had any regrets about it? Is it something that you wish you could have, you know, spent more time? Because a lot of times people will say things like, well, money isn't everything or um, spending time with my family is more important than, you know, working a job or anything like that. Is it when you, when you lost your daughter, did they make you reflect and say, hey, I wish... I would probably would have been around more in the family household. Well, I could have wished for many things. I could have wished for the fact that she didn't get leukemia. I could have right. wished for all the things that why is she ill? And I could have wished that we could have changed that. Um, I, but we were the size of a company where I could spend a lot of time with my daughter at that time. I, mm-hmm. I was able to go see her an awful lot in hospital, be with her. We could do an awful lot for her. Um, um, we, we took her to Monaco to one of our events and uh, you know, she, she was given uh, a, a nice necklace by Roger Moore. You know, it was mm-hmm. it, fabulous. And we, we brought Dolph Lundgren to, to Bolton and she was part of a very nice big celebration that we had for the, uh, for the company. So I, I did, you know, I, I was there quite a lot. It was very unfortunate. I had taken a trip to America when she actually died, right. and that 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 was that was I, tough. I probably wished I hadn't been at that trip, but you know it's it's a process, and we didn't anticipate this, um, but it happened, mm-hmm. and uh, it would have been well, yeah, you know, been better to be at home at that time. Yes, sir. But, 
if if you, if you had to lay out, um, I have two more questions and then we'll be done. If you had to lay out a, a blueprint for creating a business, whatever, and you can um, put your own spin to it, everybody, I, I love to ask entrepreneurs this. Um, if you had to lay out a blueprint um, for creating a successful business, what would it be? Well, I, I think if you could do that, I think if you could lay out, a, yeah, everybody would have a successful business. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I, I think to have a successful business is belief. You must have belief. You mm-hmm. must have the energy. You, you must be willing to uh, keep going when people are saying, why are you doing that? You must, you must be able to see something. If you've not got that energy, you've not got uh, um, that inner fortitude that you, you, you need to not give up at the first uh, problem that you, you encounter. I also find and think it's better to have somebody close, like I had Jeff. Mm-hmm. I think that way you can at least share a, a problem because it's good to talk to somebody. So it's good to have somebody go. Um, Julie and I, we, we, we have a couple of people who are really good entrepreneurs, desperate, but uh, they seem to be on their own and they can't seem to employ the right person because you, know, you need somebody really who is very close, somebody a friend almost, somebody you can talk to rather than somebody who's looking to be paid money. So you need that, even if it's a relation, somebody you can talk to, somebody will help. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's good to have somebody. So for a blueprint, yes, being on your own is difficult. Yeah. Better to have somebody with you. You must have the energy, you've got to have the ideas and uh, the belief. Must have that belief, yeah. And like we say, expect problems. Be prepared for problems, but don't let that put you off. Just be prepared. And if you are, you know, because if something comes along, you think, "Oh, I didn't expect that." Well, maybe you didn't. I mean, I didn't expect a lot of them, but we were prepared for the fact that uh, let's find an answer. Uh, and we did. We found an answer for our name. We found an answer for our. Uh, our silhouette, you know, we have to change these things. But again, somebody to talk to, somebody to be with, you do share a problem. So it is helpful. Absolutely. And my, my last and final question, um, we, I love to ask entrepreneurs this because <clears throat> we've been doing this while we've been on the road for our self-investment tour. So my final question is, what does self-investment mean to you? What did? What does self-investment mean to you? I think it means everything. I think you have to invest in yourself. I think you have to believe you can do that. And you have to believe that you're, you're capable. So you invest everything in, in what you believe. Mm-hmm. Because it, it, if you don't believe in it, if you don't invest in it, who else will? And it's, uh, I think it's so important that uh, you have to justify what you're doing and justify your existence and justify your, your motivation. So, yes, self-investing, number one. Absolutely. Mr. Foster, I want to thank you for your time. I also wanted to show you something. I I was reading in your book where you mentioned it towards the end where the uh, the D. Brown sneaker from the Slam Dunk Contest. So when I read that, I I actually had this. I don't know if you can see it. Uh, Let me see. Yeah. This is the the autographed sneaker from D. Brown. I got it. I can see it. Yes. yes. 
So I so I seen that. I was like, we were actually in Atlanta last. This was one time we were in Atlanta, and I had the. Uh, I said, you know what? I just I had a I made a little video on my phone where uh, where um, we had the autographed D Brown sneaker, and I just wanted to show you that. I was like, man, that was. It was it's interesting that you mentioned that in your book, so I just wanted to show you that that sneaker. Fantastic. Yes, sir. Fantastic. Yes. Well done. Yes, sir. That signature is a good one. Yes, sir. Do you do you still have any um of your like the old sneakers that you created in the past? Do you still have those older models, or or you don't have any of them anymore? I see see one in the back behind you, but but well, that <clears throat> that happens to be. Um, a shoe signed by Lewis Hamilton, who is the Formula One champion. Okay. Do you follow Formula One? No, I'm not sure. No, sir. <laughs> well, he's uh, he's four times world champion form in Formula One, and mm. um, he signed he signed that boot. So, but when you talk about do I have them, I travel a lot, I move around a lot. And uh, so all, all my uh, collections, they're all in Boston, all, all, in, the, all in the Reebok archive. So, uh, and that's the best place for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People can see them, people can go back and look and see what we did way back in the 60s, 70s. And in fact, even my grandfather's shoes are there. Mm. Well, so my grandfather's shoes. So that's where they should be in the archive. For me, for me to have them, I, I have too many shoes as it is. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, and they would, they would get lost. They, I move about so much, and so, no, they're they're in Boston. So if anybody wants to see them, I just make arrangements with uh, with Boston, and I'm sure they're happy to uh, show you around. Oh, absolutely, Mr. Foss. How do you? I know I said the last question, but this this would be it for me. How do you, when you look back on everything over time, how do you want Reebok to be remembered? How do I want Reebok to be remembered? I, I, would, I would like it to be there up in front of everybody as today, not just a memory. I, I don't want Reebok as a simple memory. Uh, mm -hmm. I, want, I want Reebok to be showing people how to live lives. You know, they, we, we're doing a lot with human rights. <clears throat> mm -hmm. And I think Reebok, and any company that gets to a position where they can, and what do you need to be part of human rights? You need to be part of the ecology. You need to be looking after the planet. Mm -hmm. So I hope, that, as far as I'm concerned, that Reebok continues to look after the planet, continues to be something that people value, that they, they look at Reebok and they, they see the value. So yeah, it's not, I'm not looking for history. Mm -hmm. looking for today our history is there to look at and i i hope that the history shows a trail of a company which well which has a heart which has feelings mm -hmm. you know which uh, a company which is loved you know, and i think that uh, if we can have that I and mean, that that for me is history and it's the future and that's how i want people to recognize reebok not as that uh, something of the past. Absolutely. Mr. Foster, I want to thank you again for your time. It was an absolute honor and privilege. Um, thank you for your contributions because, you know, creating a shoe, I know that couldn't be, couldn't been easy, but you've made an imprint on society, um, one that's going to be around forever. 
Um, but I want to thank you again for taking the time to sit with me. I really enjoyed this conversation. I learned a lot. Um, I love the book. For anybody who hasn't doesn't have it yet, please make sure you go get Shoemaker. Um, it's an amazing book. Um, very fascinating. You know, I, I love to you know study entrepreneurs and and see the things that they go through, their thought process, and how they handle you know difficult situations and and some of the things that you go went through and with your back against the wall, but you never gave up is truly um, a testament. And I want to thank you for um, just sharing all the stories that you did in your book. Carlos, it's been a pleasure, absolutely. And it, it is nice to talk to you and to other people and to tell the story because, uh, you know, yes, now I believe we need to tell the story and I'm glad that you enjoyed reading the book. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So hopefully everyone enjoyed this episode. Until next time, keep chasing your dreams. This is the Cross the Line Podcast. Thank you for listening.